What's up, everybody? This is FTW with ImodCon. I'm your host, ImodCon, and joining me today is Esports Insider's Adam Fitch. Thank you very much for having me. I, I still don't understand why people want to speak to me, but I'll, I'll take it as long as I can. <laughs> and today we're talking Esports Insider Digital Summit. Usually ESI Summit is held in New York, but because of the ongoing travel restrictions regarding the coronavirus, this year it was all held digitally. There was a bunch of talk about Latin America and Asia and esports teams expanding into those regions, as well as a lot of talk about mobile. And of course, you know, we'll have some idle chit-chat towards the end. But Adam, looking over the show this year, what was the main theme? What was the main takeaway? And, you know, what was the big topic everyone was talking about? Yeah, well, well, we split everything across five tracks pretty evenly, but I would say like brands and sponsorships was a main one, but we definitely wanted to include viewpoints outside of just the standard North American and European kind of tracks that, that we typically have. So yeah, we've got a flagship event in London and then yeah, we've expanded to New York and we tend to kind of make sure that things stick within the region that they're hosted. But um, yeah, we, we, so we had, there was a, a panel on, on Japan and, and as you say, mobile gaming and, and it was really interesting using the networking side of things. It's just so many people from, from international waters, from places you wouldn't expect actually coming in and chatting. So I had calls with people from the Middle East who run an organization sponsored by Gillette, which is which is insane. And it was really eye-opening overall. I, I'd say there wasn't one focus that we had, uh, as I say, brands and sponsorships. And there was one called Think, which I think is the most interesting one, where basically it was just an assortment of like think pieces or th- uh, thoughtful topics that, that maybe don't give you the answers, but open up a conversation that's not typically had in the spheres that are occupied by the people who attended, really. So what was the conversation happening from, you know, people you were talking to from the Middle East. Yeah, they were saying that players are really entitled over there and living very well, and it's hard to justify the cost it takes to sign them and pay them based on what what they bring in which sounds very much like the north american lcs to me who are like raising like like um sorry making four hundred thousand dollars a year or something ridiculous and obviously not recouping at all and yeah he was just asking about how professional things are over here and how to professionalize the scene over there because it feels like it's really far behind and and for me when I look at certain regions, it seems like they've got a really passionate fan base and they actually should be in a better position than, than some of the more exposed re- regions, really. But no, it just it just reminded me very starkly that there is a real disparity in esports based on the regions. And, and when we discuss esports as a global industry, we kind of naturally assume it's all on a level playing field because we just band them all together. But realistically, each kind of region's got its own challenges and is at its own stage of development. And... What may seem bad in, in like Europe in terms of wasting money and not being able to re- like actually profit is just as bad elsewhere, but just on a, on a smaller scale in, in terms of the monetary values attached. It was, yeah, it was very eye-opening in that sense, for sure. Yeah, what do you mean by the players being entitled in the Middle East? Like, I mean, I didn't think that there was like a strong enough player pool down there to where they're demanding super high salaries i agree i also had that view but yeah it was the i was speaking to the ceo of gillette infinity so gillette is the title sponsor of infinity esports i believe and uh, yeah he was he was saying that the, the players overvalue themselves they've been given a taste of 
like a really good salary from I don't know it could be like one organization that's come in for a bit and, and overpaid and then backed out but kind of raised the stakes for everybody involved so yeah it, from from everything that I could glean from the conversation you know, there was only like 15 minute bites and I, I tried to take every meeting that I could during the, the two-day event but he was saying they'd had a, a, a certain exposure to a lifestyle that they wanted to keep up and it's very hard as an organization there to be able to provide that and maintain it for a long period of time yeah you know I do know some organizations that are out of like Saudi Arabia and it seems that you know they're largely working with players outside of the country like some of the top players like elsewhere for example Arslan Ash the phenomenal Tekken player he's sponsored by a Saudi Arabian team and it's it's a very small like like you would almost say it's like nowhere near the level of like a Cloud9 or TSM but you know it seems that you know they're just trying to like work within their region and trying to get players that normally a North American team wouldn't and it seems that you know for the FGC I've seen that Saudi Arabia and UAE it's very grassroots very down to earth but then you know generally I haven't seen like you know a League of Legends kind of thing pop up in that region so i'm just kind of curious as like where things will go especially if they're all demanding very very high salaries but let's jump over to latin america i mean i know that riot has opened up the first arena for the latin american league is latin america just like it was in csgo something that league of legends fans should start really paying attention to i i I think it's already begun to happen so if if i remember correctly there were two leagues that they've merged into one and it's called the lla and they upgraded the, the graphics and the visual identity and such. And I can't admit to of being able to tune in and watch it by any means. Like I don't, I don't really watch League of Legends anyway. That's not my jam. But everything I've heard suggests, like, even if the viewership doesn't compare to elsewhere, like, the, the passion of the fans and such is insane. I, I can't speak to, to the level of play. But it, it seems like, from my... It's not jaded, but it's, I'm almost uneducated on it uh, to a point. It's definitely not my area of expertise by any means, um, Latin America. But it, it, see, it seems like it's getting there. It seems like everything's in place for it to grow. It's just it's just a matter of time. And having the infrastructure in place by Riot, for, for example, like means that I actually am aware that the LLA exists myself, like an English person. Like I, it's, it's not in a language that I understand or speak. So the fact that I'm even aware of it and the fact that Axe uh, is, a, is a sponsor, for example... And I think Gillette may be involved as well. And the fact that I I know they've rebranded recently is interesting. And obviously the COVID thing has not helped by any means. Moving everything online and and Latin America isn't small. (laughs) So yeah, it it seems to me like it's got a good thing going. And it's just just a matter of time, which is obviously a a key phrase in esports where we're just always waiting for something to come around. Yeah, I I think the other thing that was really surprising to me was just how large of a market Mexico is, because I always assumed that Brazil was the largest esports market in Latin America. But uh, according to, you know, some articles I've read online, I've had to translate them, you know, using Google Translate and whatnot. But Mexico, we're looking at $1.8 billion market, while Brazil is like a $1.6 billion market. Like, I had no idea Mexico was that that powerful of a market. Uh, Either did I. That you've you've taught me something there, and and I think what you've done there is identified a lack of something in, in esports, and I, I guess in generally the coverage in English, like we we just cover typically at esports inside. I speak for myself, but I do also. I'm aware of the competition as such, or the, the the other people occupying the space that we're in, where we only cover the bits that are sent to us. We we it's hard for us to go out and seek those things, and maybe it's something we should consider, like getting uh, bringing in a journalist that or specialises in in Latin America. So when these insights are made and, and when the big par- partnerships and, and whatever the big shifts may be over there in the industry or like we're actually aware of it and, and us at Esports Insider we should 
have a more global approach to the esports industry if we're looking to help everyone stay on top of what's happening because you're only getting like one side of the coin you're only getting realistically uh, north america and europe with with a bit of there's a bit of change in there and we have tried bringing in like regional writers not for mexico though not for latin america and it's not quite worked out but that that is definitely when you consider the size of the market and what's going on over there it's, it's something that's definitely on my mind it's just a matter of time before i i speak to my boss about it and we see what we can do because it's undeniably a big market right and it definitely deserves coverage in, in english on a prominent publication in my mind and it's kind of tied into us on the media end because there just isn't still a ton of money being poured into esports journalism and coverage mm-hmm. uh cecilia d'anastasio from wired just had a thread on twitter this is kind of an article she had been working on when she was at kotaku where she was going to talk about kind of the state of esports media and esports journalism the article never got off the ground and it seems that you know wired didn't greenlight it either which i guess is only maybe exacerbating her qualms with when she was doing her reporting but on twitter she had a whole thread talking about how because there's like so little funding because like there are quite a few people in esports journalism like literally making like 20 to 30 dollars per article there's this huge gap in coverage and you know a lot of people like just aren't covering things that the way they should other than like the few people that can afford to hire writers and give them a decent salary and this is like you know it's something that i've always wanted to do uh, do more international reporting like i've been wanting to like really go to india well before a ton of violence broke out but i've been really wanting to go to india and report over there i've been really wanting to go to saudi arabia and report over there i've really been wanting to go to pakistan as well uh, as well as latin america but it's just like it's really hard as a freelancer to like get any publication to like get you the funds to actually go over there to do esports coverage i did do reporting in japan in 2017 for espn for like a two-month stint, which was a really valuable experience and learned a lot about the esports scene out there and pretty much figured out why that's it's such a, a quagmire of a country for esports to really flourish in. And I don't know, as somebody who's been with ESI for a while now, have you... And this is not like a criticism of ESI, but what I'm asking is like, have you had the opportunity to really do all the international reporting that you've wanted to do? No, <laughs> no, I, I think... As you say, not criticism of ESI, but we're, we're guilty of it as well. When I freelanced for maybe a year and a half at Esports Insider while I was freelancing elsewhere. And yeah, it's, it's just, it's good to have those thoughts and, and those wishes and, and really hope to do those things. But convincing like a, an endemic, at least esports publication, very difficult. And, and I, I really have experience outside of esports publications. So when it comes to Wired, Kotaku, whoever it may be, I can't say, even though they seem to have more backing than most in esports. It seems, well, realistically, what I find to be one of the problems is that's not the stuff that really brings in the dosh, right? It's it's mm-hmm. all the the online celebrity stuff. So you, your Logan Pauls and your David Dobricks and such, and such. If you look at Deserto, which is widely touted and I believe correctly touted as... The, the biggest esports publication uh, it's, esports is only a fraction of what they really do there they're, they're big on right. the influencers and the online side of things so like it's hard to justify to them why you should go and report on something esports related for them when it's probably going to bring in half of what they get from a news post about KSI or something which they can write in 30 minutes you know yeah, it's, be able to break that to them and say look no look this is important even if it loses you money like this is still really important and will establish your your publication in a different way. You'll be seen differently if you're enabling this kind of reporting. I don't think it's, it's plausible. And also, I don't think there's many people in esports who are willing and able to do that as well. And probably myself included. I don't think I'm anywhere near, near as good as some people say I am. I, I think it's mass- I'm massively overrated as a rule. Uh, I don't know <laughs> if I would do it justice. You know, I don't know if I'm if I'm worth the loss. 
it would be to, to send me out to a country where I'm not from to go and, and report. This is definitely an interesting one, and, and there's a lot to, to go on based on the topic that she brought up on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say don't sell yourself short. You know, I think we're reporters. We have to go out there. We have to put ourselves in uncomfortable situations and in new situations to bring people the story. I've heard, This is, like, really going off topic, but, you know, there was this whole kind of debate in journalism a few years back about people from one country covering another country when people were arguing that you should have people from that country cover that country. You know, let's say, uh, me, an American, should I be covering stuff happening in Cuba? Like, can't we get a reporter in Cuba to do that? I reject that notion because the point of a reporter is to, like, throw yourself out there and bring back the information. Mm -hmm. Uh, Could somebody from Cuba potentially do a better job? Of course, right? But does that mean that, you know, you as a reporter only, like, put yourself in your own personal locality and never actually expand out and, you know, try to become better? I think it's it becomes like a quick slippery slope where like you're you end up just only covering your own locality because there's always going to be somebody saying that oh you know you're denying work to a native or something. Back to esports <laughs> insider digital summit. You know, let's also talk about mobile. Mobile gaming has been something that's been touted for years. I always get press emails about it like such and such event is happening. Latin America and Southeast Asia as well as China kind of lead the way in forming teams for forming leagues. Is mobile gaming really going to be thing that people are predicting will be the next big thing for for years now that is a great question and even the foremost expert at the forefront of mobile esports cannot give an answer you know it's 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 incredible i've spoken to mobile matt who is the director of mobile gaming at complexity he's very bullish on it and he runs complexity's entire operations when it comes to mobile right and he couldn't give me answers really as to when things will kick off and like what will be the catalyst for it. It just leads me back to this this like age-old thing that I've discovered in esports now where we're all just waiting for this this promise to be realised. You know, like everyone's saying it's going to be the next big thing, but like, and, and there are logical reasons as to why that's the case, but like things that are illogical happen often. If I was a betting man, I would put money on the fact that mobile will be huge. I don't know if it'll be the leading thing. I don't know if it'll take over PC. Again, you can look at it regionally and say, well, it probably is bigger in some places than others, right? And, and that's inarguably a, fa- a fact, realistically. But um, I, I don't know what it would take. I don't know if the game's already out there. I don't know if mobile needs its own kind of Fortnite, which thrusts it into like mainstream entertainment, and then from there you can build off of the back of it. It's, it's really hard to say, and I think that's what makes it somewhat of a really interesting topic to discuss because you can kind of dissect what mobile esports is and why it's so accessible in some places and why it hasn't taken off in others. But nobody, from from what I've I've listened to and who people I've spoken to, they've not really got it figured out because it just doesn't quite make sense like everyone thought cod mobile would be the one and they've announced the world championship now for that but um after the initial day of it being announced i've not seen anybody talk about it at all so i don't know i say it's a matter of time uh, and that's kind of esports's unofficial slogan now in in my mind it's a matter of time (laughs) you know because we're just waiting for everything to come into fruition that that we believe will i agree that with your idea that you know there has to be a fortnite like title like something that just completely takes over the mindset of everybody like around the world to start paying attention like there really needs to be that crazy killer app i'm trying to think of like mobile games in general that have like completely taken over like pokemon go was like really big at one point in time angry birds was like huge at one point in time i'd say probably something like to that extent where there are just so many people playing it casually that people just have to pay attention here's the thing like i think when anybody talks about mobile like the numbers are always like astounding you know Mm -hmm. it's like 
the revenue growth in China and Southeast Asia is always nuts. We're hearing that it's like a $21 billion industry, you know, because mobile gaming is just that strong. It's making like three times more than like PC gaming at the moment, which, you know, I totally believe, right? I'm working on a story for the New York Times at the moment, and a major, major publisher, a long-standing video game publisher that makes some of the most beloved titles in video games, their console game, like, margins are so much less, like, pathetically less than the margins that they're making on just their mobile games, right? And I literally could not tell you what mobile games they have. It's probably some, like, regional games that have, like, really taken off in, like, Japan or China. It's weird because it's, like, this juggernaut that is keeping this company afloat, but it's, like, nobody really knows about it. It's just kind of this weird space that, like, like, it exists, but nobody cares. (laughs) Uh, that's that's definitely very interesting. I don't know which one you're alluding to. I, I'm I'm looking forward to reading the the story, but I'm not huge. Like this is where I come clean, right? So obviously I'm in esports full time. Been around it for a little bit now, but like I'm so out of the loop when it comes to video games. I see a really clear divide, and I immerse myself in one side of it, and and it's definitely mm-hmm. a shortcoming of mine. But I feel that there's so much, perhaps too much to learn in esports where I, I just have to like switch off. So I couldn't tell you what number Final Fantasy has just come out and I can't I can't tell you <laughs> what the next big console title is, you know. I, I'm aware of Call of Duty every year and I'm aware that it disappoints people and then they start to love it and then a new one comes out and I always think that's really stupid. That just means when it comes to like general games revenue and such, I'll know some of those figures and they'll obviously wow me every time because the scale and the size of video games absolutely ridiculous but when it comes down to the minutia and, and the, the new trends and new developments i'm massively out of the loop so um just one of your friends who you have like idle chit chat with for example will know a lot more than than myself on that front unfortunately <laughs> well i think before we jump into idle chit chat i just want to talk about one last thing really quick and it is in-game sponsorships right so we're now seeing this in league of legends where for example mastercard is now the global sponsor for riot and with that, you know, you're going to start seeing MasterCard logos in the video game of League of Legends. And then, you know, with the LEC, KitKat is now the, the sponsor there. Other than the Riot announcement, I mean, was there a lot of talk about like, oh, we got to make sure that Doritos is in Rainbow Six uh, and other brands are in other games? I definitely said there was a huge focus on that. And I mean, I think there are bad sides of brands and sponsorships that are perhaps not spoken about enough. I didn't get to catch all of the panels, so I can't say if this was highlighted. I'd like to think it was. But like, organizations are so reliant on, on the revenue that comes in from, from their sponsors, right? Mm-hmm. To the point where, where it really worries me. It just takes it takes one major sponsor or partner to back out, and, and things look really scary. But then on on the flip side, as you say, so as like the in-game banners coming in now with the Mastercard, and there's one other. And um, yeah, it, the the thing is, when I asked Riot about how they actually worked with Nielsen to define what the value of these things were, they said, "Oh, we'll have to get back to you on that," and you never hear anything. And it's it's just it's interesting. So it seems really great, and I'm sure it is. But this was not stipulated in any contract. And it, but the thing that's would really surprise me is if Riot Games is introducing these things to provide extra value to their partners without expecting anything additional in return. And I don't know if it's just some grand leverage saying, "Oh, look, we've got this in-game stuff now. You've got to stick with us for another three years, and you've got to keep paying us however much a year to." to be involved it's it's um it definitely was a major talking point at esi digital summit and i think would be remiss to not have it as a major talking point because that is so much of what goes on and it's definitely so much of what we stay on top of at esports insider ourselves so i know we're not there to serve ourselves by any means it's just we put this on for everyone else 
but it's it's un- undeniably like if you speak to anyone about esports, they'll say, "Oh, did you know BMW's partnered with those five organizations?" And then today it'd be like, "Oh, McLaren's partnered with Dragon X," and oh, Louis Vuitton thing with, with and they all seem to be League of Legends related. My examples, right. which says everything, I think. Yeah, it's definitely a huge talking point, and there's a lot going on there. I think most of it positive, but there's some inherent negatives there. While people do not know how to make their organisations profitable in in any way, but that is an entirely separate topic that I would love to rant about. But there's only so many hours in the day, <laughs> you know. I I just remember a buddy of mine at Yahoo got like a giant care package from Mastercard regarding mm. League of Legends. Uh, this was like a few years ago, and he's just like, "Imad, what what does this mean? Like, what do I make of this like giant package?" I'm just like. Uh. Well, you know, the the best way I could relate it to him was like, I guess maybe MasterCard's strategy is that because Visa is like the sponsor of like the Olympics and so many sporting events, that maybe MasterCard is trying to carve its name in like the world of esports. It was just a theory, but his eyes lit up. Or his eyes lit up. He still didn't write about it. You know, that's <laughs> kind of like the never ending conundrum for so many brands that are trying to like expand into esports. They don't get like the media coverage from the traditional outlets usually. Yeah. But Adam, quickly, when you're in quarantine at home, staring at a blank wall, Talking to your imaginary friend, what has been the main topic of conversation over in London? One thing I will say is I'm not I'm not rich enough to live in London, unfortunately. I'm in a really <laughs> crappy part of England. But when, when I'm alone, not working, talking to myself, thinking things through, I'm thinking I should play more video games and uh, appreciate them more. Uh, it's definitely part of it. Uh, another part is the political shit show we've got going on in both the US and the UK. Uh, I'm not not tell, a politics guy massively myself because it would just bog me down. It would definitely stress me out. So I try to limit my my intake of, of politics, rightly or wrongly. But yeah, uh, definitely a lot of it is the fact that I spend so much time trying to uncover the bad parts of the industry and you know trying to make it a, a better place. Genuinely, from like the least selfish point of view possible, I want esports to be the best thing ever. Right, that's why I work in it, and I spend so much time around the negative negative points where I, I i forget why i got into things in the first place and I, I go back and think oh like how much fun did i have playing spider-man on the ps1 and then rayman and then move on to call of duty and and then and then yeah it's one thing i found well, I mean, what's, is what's sorry yeah go what's for it. what's yeah well, what's going on with in the uk when you're alluding to the politics oh god okay yeah um so dominic cummings uh, our chief idiot over over here in the uk did an oopsie where basically so so his wife suspected coronavirus he then later suspected it also and thought okay we need to get care for our kids didn't have anybody in the local vicinity that was willing to do it apparently so drove 200 miles to a cottage owned so i think his his parents owned land where there were three three separate cottages and one was spare, mm-hmm. so he was saying, "Okay, we're going to move the kid in there." Then one of one of my nieces thankfully said they'd look after the kid, which is a really weird breach, anyway. Your niece, who's not exposed to the <laughs> to the disease at all, looking after your kid who's been potentially exposed to it, you know. Yes. And then he he said he started getting really ill, and his eyesight was faulty, uh, faulty as anything, and he wasn't sure if he could drive. So what he did was he packed himself, his wife, and his kid in a car and drove for thirty minutes. <laughs> um, to test out his eyesight, ridiculous stuff. And then he went to Bernard Castle and just basically, seemingly, did everything he could to avoid following the guidelines that have been set in place for everybody in the country 
and then tried to say it was all fine when doing a press conference and he was completely fine when reading off of the cards that had been pre-written for him but as soon as journalists were allowed to actually ask him questions he turned into <laughs> a shaking mess who couldn't get words out he was the least eloquent person of all time and he was just adamant that he didn't really do anything wrong so now people are following by his example you know, and going out and, and acting as if there's not a deadly oh, disease, no. potentially fatal disease going about the country and the entire world. It's definitely interesting times around here, I could put it that way. Yeah, I think I think what was interesting was that, you know, not only did this guy help create some of the public policy that led to the restrictions mm-hmm. that, you know, people in England are having to deal with right now, as with many other people around the world, but him going out on this adventure... He's been fully supported by Boris Johnson, which has completely tanked him in the polls. And it's like, oh, this is the thing that did it? And, you know, I don't know. It's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of, I don't know, how the administrations over in the UK, as well as the administrations in the US, will try to recover from, like, this entire disaster. Quickly jumping over to my idol chit-chat, I want to talk about briefly Twitter and Donald Trump. I would love to know more about what's going on there. So for the first time ever, like uh, it, it, I guess it's not a surprise for anybody listening that Trump has an odd relationship with the truth. And he often spouts, I would go so far as to say just straight up lies, right? Like, I mean, I think the probably the correct term is misinformation, but really it's just like it's so outside of reality. I cannot see how somebody could be informed so improperly. Like it has to be just him lying. But he was essentially saying that vote by mail is going to be completely rigged. There's tons of evidence of people faking, you know, ballots to try to, like, prop up the vote. And Twitter was just like, hey, this tweet has misinformation. Click on here to, like, get the actual facts. And then it linked to articles by, like, The Washington Post, The New York Times, CNN, talking about the actual statistics of mail-in voting and if there's actually any voter fraud. And in reality, it's, like, so minuscule, you probably have, like, a greater chance of being struck by lightning. He got on a huge tirade about this. He was super upset. He was talking about how this Republicans have always been discriminated against on these platforms and that he's going to do everything in his power to like make sure social media companies uh, don't infringe on free speech. So there are two things here. One, I think it's interesting that the Re- Republican Party still claims that you know they're always the victim, even though they control the presidency, the Senate, and the Supreme Court. And then two... Twitter didn't take down the tweet. They just added more information for people so that they could read about it themselves and then make their own judgment. I, I think for him to say that they're stifling free speech would be a difficult claim to make. If he decides to imp- you know, create an executive order, which I, I, was, I got an alert last night saying that the White House was trying to pass some kind of executive order to restrict what social media companies can cannot do. You know, if it goes to the Supreme Court, even with a Republican Supreme Court, I'd be surprised if they ruled in the favor of the White House, just because it, the implications would be just so, so massive uh, in terms of private companies. It's, it's quite the weird situation here in, in America. And uh, with that, you know, I guess we'll close out the show. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on, Adam. I appreciate you having me. Genuinely, I, I really enjoy chatting esports and not esports, so any opportunity I can, especially to speak with someone like yourself we'd never actually spoken before, but I'm um, <laughs> very aware of, of quite a bit of your work, obviously not all of it. Uh, but no, I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan. If you like the show, please share and rate it on Apple Podcasts. Your support will help the show grow. We have plans to continue expanding the show's reach and look forward to your support. If you want to follow Adam from Esports Insider, he can be found on Twitter at ByAdamFitch. If you want to follow my writing at The New York Times, The Washington Post, and elsewhere, be sure to follow me on Twitter at Imad. Annie Pay is our producer. Any questions about the show can be directed to her on Twitter at Pay underscore Annie. And Ron Lyons is our researcher. 
with that, we'll catch you guys next week.